This is John Williams reaching out to our old friend Thomas Jefferson. President Jefferson, are you there? Good day to you, citizen. I wish it were, Mr. Jefferson. The Republicans had a big debate last night. The last three have devolved each another step lower in decorum. Boy, were they arguing, cutting each other off, calling each other names. Last night, Donald Trump assured the American people that his manhood is large and not reflected in the size of his hands, which he said, by the way, are big enough as it is. So that's what it's come to. And the Republican Party is trying now to push back on Donald Trump to keep him from emerging as ultimately their candidate. I wonder what strategy you would have for them. So you hear you have this tiny-fingered vulgarian who's about to become the Republican candidate. Any suggestions for the party on what they could do to push him back down in the polls? Well, I don't recommend that. The people are sovereign. And in the Republican Party, there is a process for creating the nominee for the presidency. In your era, that involves primaries and caucuses. In my time, no such things occurred. But if you have a system, and this man from New York is uh, prevailing under that system, then he should be the nominee of that party. Whenever you deny the people their will and try to veto their decided choice or to second-guess them, or to put them in their place because you think you know better, now you're not only um, betraying the very principle of a republic, but you're on the road to tyranny. So I would urge the party to wait and see what happens in the next few stages of this nomination process, and then cheerfully to <laughs> accept the will of the people. Cheerfully. Yeah, I've thought about that. In fact, I I thought after the election, if Trump is, in fact, president, you'll really have to double down on that speech of yours where you tell everybody they should regard it as a victory for their own side. We should happily unite. Something like that before, haven't you? Yes. In my first inaugural address, I say every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. So in your time, you would say we are all Democrats we are all Republicans. The, the parties want essentially the same thing. They want a secure America, a prosperous America, a nation with the least possible government to get the job done. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that everyone agrees on that more or less. And, and if we would only move civilly towards what we all can agree upon, uh, we would find that most political battles are of no consequence. But hasn't this happened before where the people... There's some revolution, and maybe we're having that now. A lot of times they're military. Right now we're having a a political revolution. But then the person who led the revolution is put in power, and in fact they become a tyrant. You, You talk about us devolving into tyranny. I think we're about to elect a tyrant. Well, election is different from a coup d'etat. The best example of that in my time was Napoleon. Napoleon was a a relatively minor military figure from Corsica, from the island of Corsica, and he rose by the, his capacity as a military strategist and a warrior to become central to the French Revolution. And then instead of honoring that revolution, he destroyed it and installed himself as dictator. This almost invariably happens, and we are fortunate in this our happy republic that when George Washington had finished his great work, 
in protecting our liberties. He resigned his commission. He returned to his farm at Mount Vernon and resumed private life. That almost never happens in the history of the world. I've asked you before if there was somebody in your day who was like Donald Trump. And I seem to recall, was it Patrick Henry you said, or one of the great orators of your day? Um, I usually, at this point, talk about Patrick Henry, who was a a demagogue. He was better at tearing down uh, British colonial tyranny than he was in creating the alternative here in Virginia or the United States. Sometimes I think of Aaron Burr, but when you get to the point of one candidate likening the other's hands to a small uh, sexual organ, and then the other candidate assuring the American people on national television before 20 or 30 million people that his sexual organs were quite sufficient, thank you very much, you have now reached the end time. Well, so (laughs) you know that's, that's that's why I bring it up, because I wonder if Aaron Burr would have you know, if it would have devolved to that in your age, no. I'm I'm not satisfied with your assertion that we shouldn't, you know, usurp the will of the people because uh, uh, that's all we're trying to do. Whoever the 40 percent of the Republicans are, we're all trying to find a way to do some end around from their will. It would be a mistake. Uh, the people have spoken. So something has happened with the body politic, that there is widespread anger and frustration and cynicism and a desire to do something vulgar as a response to the official political culture of the United States. So that has to be acknowledged and it has to be channelized. Whether this person from New York can do that is an open question. But to deny him his victory merely because you don't or somebody else doesn't like who he is, would be to thwart the very idea of a democracy. And so instead of that, one of two things should happen. And there's plenty of time for uh, another candidate to emerge within the Republican Party. Uh, the, the process is only partly underway. And secondly, uh, there's another party. So in the fall, if this Trump becomes the candidate, presumably the other party will put forward someone who is more civil, more responsible, more mature, and that person will win in a landslide. Okay, I'm just going to pause for a second, and as we listen to that, there's Thomas Jefferson saying that however distasteful Trump and his strategies are, that we should embrace the will of the people that are putting him forward. The people have spoken. Okay, I'm just going to sit here now. Little John. I'm going to call you Little John. Oh, God almighty. Are you kidding me? And then, you know, he's got buttons that you push and you know he'll react. He's like a wind-up doll. So if you reference the size of his hands as Vanity Fair, back to Spy Magazine has all these years, you know he's going to get wound up. And if you call him, uh, what is it, a short-fingered vulgarian, you know he's going to snap. Or if, um, it, I guess that's the that, that's one of the easiest ways to get him going. And then he'll call you a little man, too. And then, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the presidential, that's the 11th Republican presidential debate. There are four people on the stage, and that's what it was last night. Uh, just if this stunning. had happened in my time, if someone had called into question uh, the size of my manhood... 
I would have quietly dismissed myself, uh, asked to be excused, <laughs> off the stage. and would have gone back to Monticello, and you would never have seen me again. But yeah. here's the more interesting part of that. If somebody had done that in my time, yeah. the, the people would have utterly rejected that person and never listened to anything that he had to say for the rest of his political career unless there were a very abject apology. And saying something as Mr. Rubio has done, would have led to an affair of honor and probably a duel <laughs> in my time. <laughs> Between what, Trump and Rubio or their seconds, that sort of thing? Well, probably they would square off and then Trump would have a, a group of ruffians that would beat the living daylights out of Mr. Rubio. I doubt that he himself would be a duelist, but he could hire ruffians to do it on his behalf. But this sort of thing would have led... To an affair of honor and maybe a duel in my time. I mean, uh, when Hamilton and Burr fought their duel in July of 1804, the allegations were much more civil than these. And so I think Hamilton said something like this at a dinner party in New York. He said they had been, uh, a group of people were drinking and they had been saying uh, bad things about Aaron Burr. And he said a still more despicable thing might be said of him. And that led to his death on the banks of the Hudson River in New Jersey. Are you kidding me? That's yeah, what got that. that that's that's what sustained that argument or propelled a, it to a duel? A still more despicable thing might be said of them and I and nobody knows quite what this was. Historians can't sort it out and I was never told, but most historians think that that Hamilton was suggesting that Burr might have had improperly intimate relations with his own daughter Theodosia. But this has never been proved. There's no document to show it. But something that Hamilton said as he, he actually stood up on a table at this dinner party and sang patriotic songs. So I'm guessing there was some whiskey involved in this somewhere. And then he said this thing. And when it got back through the third or fourth hand to Burr, Burr challenged Hamilton and insisted that he clarify whatever it was that he had said. And Hamilton, instead of saying, well, look, I was drunk, or I'm terribly sorry, I shouldn't have done it, or it was really innocent if you were there, something like that. Instead of doing any of that, Hamilton took the bait, and this ratcheted up until it became a duel. And as you know, on the 11th of July, 1804, Hamilton and Burr met on the banks of the Hudson River at Weehawken, and Hamilton uh, apparently threw away his fire. That is, he fired not to hit Burr, but Burr was under no such compunction and he shot Hamilton in the spine, after which um, the, the, the former Secretary of the Treasury lived about 30 hours before he died. Well, that concludes this podcast with the uh, sort of vision in our heads of Marco Rubio and Donald Trump or somebody <clears throat> squaring off with their guns. You know, it, crazier things have happened. <laughs> it won't come to that. But uh, here's my takeaway from this, Mr. Jefferson, and that is... and and. By the way, I'm, I'm listening to you. Um, the process is more important than a person. And however distasteful Trump is to me, we have checks and balances. Um, I got an email from somebody this week, and I've been putting down Donald Trump a lot on my radio shows. And, and they said, you know, I know you don't like Donald Trump. I don't either. But I wish you would stop saying bad things about the people who do. They're not stupid. They have various motivations, and it's not just born out of ignorance. I said, yeah, that's fair. Maybe I should keep that in mind. Well, last night when there were four 
Republicans on stage, I could only think two things. One is, in a society with 330 million people, is this the best we can do? Um, this does not bode well for your culture that you have descended into something that even the Roman Empire would not have permitted in the last days of its decadence. And, and secondly, uh, there was one civil person there, uh, apparently a governor from Ohio, and it would seem to me that he should win by acclamation after this. The, the, the way the other three behaved, in my opinion, makes them ineligible to be taken seriously by the American people for any office of any sort, even at the local level. And so while I agree that the will of the people must be accepted, I'm astonished that there are enough people in America who find any of those three people interesting that they would give them a moment's attention. Thomas Jefferson's America is distributed by the WGN Plus Podcast Network. You can subscribe on iTunes or hear it on WGNplus.com or the WGN Plus app. Learn more about Clay Jenkinson and how you can book him for an event by going to ClayJenkinson.com. That's J-E-N-K-I-N-S-O-N.com.